What if we could get away from compartmentalizing our lived experience as Christians and find an integrated way to live out our lives with all the people in our neighborhood, community, churches, and world? Or how might the sacraments of the church provide a means for us to rethink our faithful presence in the world. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. We're the podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically. We often look to have authors, practitioners, those who can help us think on the ground about practical theology and what it means to be a faithful presence of Jesus in the world in all the experiences of life. Today on the podcast, uh, I have one of my favorites uh, for a return engagement, and that's David Fitch. David uh, teaches at Northern Seminary. I have never met David in person, but we've uh, talked on the phone and Skype a couple of times And maybe one of these days, our particular traveling schedules will bring us at a real-time, real-life intersection. But along the way, I've learned much from David, uh, from all of the books that he has written. In today's podcast, we explore his most recent uh, book, Faithful Presence. It was so impressionable on me that when I was thinking about a theme for uh, our church year, Beginning in January, yes, we follow the lectionary in our uh, sermon uh, preaching series, but um, we try to think calendar-wise in terms of how could we mark the year thematically. And I was so uh, taken by David's book that his uh, description of faithful presence seemed uh, appropriate for our time, appropriate for the particular situations that Christians and the church finds itself in our world today. And so I invite you uh, to listen to our conversation. Of course, as always, I think you should pick up uh, any book David has written. This would be a really, really good one. Before you think it's too academic or over your head, it's extremely accessible, eminently practical, And it's written not just by someone who sits in an ivory tower, but someone who's actually been involved in church planting and is currently, as he has been for years, uh, one of the pastors at a local church in the Chicago area. So without any further ado, uh, here is my conversation with David Fitch on his book, Faithful Presence. One of the things I wanted to, uh, to, to talk to you about was um, the way that you describe the the three spheres or the three places in which a human being participates, especially we're talking about how a Christian participates in the world and the three spaces that uh, you describe where we're present. And and I, and I thought that um, I, I wanted to ask you, what do you think uh, as a church, because I, I really use this, frankly, as a... Um, as kind of theme for this year for our church, um, that um, first Sunday in January was let let's agree that that we ought to really think through all that we do in terms of how we are faithfully present in our community, in our neighborhoods, yeah. and then and then beyond that. 
So when when you think about uh, churches and, and your conversations with pastors and your training, church planters and such, uh, which area or arena or sphere do you think is, is the most difficult for someone who hasn't thought that way to engage? Yeah. Well, uh, first, Todd, let me distinguish between spheres and uh, the way I have um, architected or designed this three-circle idea. Um, Spheres has a Kuyperian uh, kind of neo-Calvinist idea to it that we have these spheres as individuals that we live in. Uh, we go from one sphere to the other, and they each have their own integrity. And, and in actuality, the church is a separate sphere, and work is another sphere, and family, and education, and arts, and government. Um, I actually don't like that. I don't like it because it decenters the church, and it puts the individual at the forefront. And it says the individual lives in each one of these circles at any one given time. Each circle, each sphere, in the words of Kuiper himself, has its own integrity. And I feel like that's influenced uh, a lot of evangelicalism that I'm a part of. A lot of, uh, you know, Tim Keller's, I think, uh, got some overlap there. I don't see it that way. I see the church as a way of life in and among the world. And we engage all those from this one way of life a close circle, which is our worshiping, gathering, committed life together. A dotted circle, which is the way we live all of this stuff out in the neighborhood, but still with a inherent integrity of a gathered Christian of three or four or five or shoot, it can be 10 or 12 Christians gathered in the neighborhood. And then the half circle, which is the Christian or the Christians tending to spaces in the neighborhood. That's one unified way of life. So close circle, dotted circle, half circle, and they extend one from another. The presence of Christ is in the world, but yet he's peculiarly present with us. And we are witnesses and discerners of his presence as his people. So having laid out that uh, distinction, which maybe you're getting, it's it's somewhat important to me. Um, I would like people to think about church as a way of life not as an individual way of life, but as a whole way of life. Okay, getting to your question now, which of those three circles is the biggest struggle? Um, well, for a lot of people, especially established Christians, the close circle is the go-to circle. It's the one everybody's used to. It's the one everyone's used to putting all their time and effort and energy into. Um, the other two circles, well, most churches have small groups or house groups Mm -hmm. as part of their life together. So I think the dotted circle perhaps is um, next easiest for, for most Christians. Unfortunately, I don't think what we're doing in those groups is the same thing that I'm describing in the dotted circle. And so that part of it stretches people. Uh, there we are gathered around tables in our neighborhoods as Christians, living our lives together, tending to the presence of Christ between us and among us and what he's doing in our lives. And that's just a practice. I was just with a pastor last night, Nazarene pastor, struggling getting people to go from the close circle 
to the dotted circle mm-hmm. in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Big, big struggle. Mm-hmm. The half circle, which is our our position as guests in the world, I, I simply think that's off the charts for most people. I even think mm-hmm. millennials who are involved in justice in the world don't get how the way God works is we become guests tending to what God's doing in and among the world. Mm-hmm. We don't go there to solve people's problems, to get involved in a justice effort where everything's programmed and figured out. That is another stretch for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. And this is why, you know, maybe the book is challenging on a lot of different aspects in terms of implementation for the average pastor. Oh, I think that's fantastic. And I'm, I'm glad you... you um, pointed out the the difference between sphere and these circles and kind of what you have in mind because I think um, uh, it, it does help us kind of find uh, the means to communicate how we've kind of over individualized um, the Christian experience such that um, we don't understand and at least this is one of my takeaways um, we don't understand kind of the the fruitful uh, fruitfulness as well as I'm going to go ahead and use the word. Um, may not be the best, but but power that's involved in in what a community brings to um, representing Christ's faithful presence in the world, and and that um, right. uh, in, an individual uh, emphasis often leaves us discouraged, um, yes. and and almost feeling as though we, we have an insurmountable task, and and yeah. so I, I really found that really um, helpful. I'm glad you drew out that distinction. I didn't. I think I remember you pointing to early on kind of the distinction between spheres and and circles. You know, um, <clears throat> when can I make yeah. one little point yeah, about sure. your use of power there? Yeah, uh, I believe there's. I, I believe power's um, tricky term. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way the world sees and understands power, I believe, is different than the way. God in Christ sees, understands, operates in power. Mm. And so two things. I would say there is much power in the church, but it's God's power in Christ. Whenever we try to control it, we we, we inevitably, oh, God withdraws. This is something I learned from Griff Boyd, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we make space for God's power to become present among us and to become real and visible in the world. But it is a not a it's not a despotic power. Right. Violent coercive power is the power of his presence to draw people to himself and unwind the antagonisms and all the things that are thwarting his purposes in the world. It's incredible power, but it's not power like mm-hmm. human uh, human people normally think and exert power in their lives. So I think it's important to get that distinction and then realize we are the ones who bear his presence make visible his presence, open up space for his presence, and that presence brings an unbelievable power, but it's a healing power, mm. restoring power, mm. renewing power. Yeah. I think fantastic distinction. And, and and maybe just as an aside there, you, you made a you, you, you used a made a reference and of course I'm I've been reading you for a while and and uh, I, I uh, you're one of my I'm, I'm I guess I'm a fanboy of sorts. Um, but um <clears throat> when when pastors who might listen to this um, might be unfamiliar with uh, how you describe 
antagonisms and, and kind of what you mean when you um, talk about the way faithful presence uh, actually uh, reveals, exposes, and undermines the uh, uh, antagonisms that we experience. How would you, how, could, do you have an illustration for that, that that might help someone who's listening understand? Because they may not, in their normal discourse, you know, make a reference to uh, an antagonism. Yeah, well, it's kind of like a specialist word that now I'm using almost like uh, in terms uh, I, I almost use it in terms of everyday life. Antagonism, the uh, the way we live in the world, which uh, we default to positioning ourselves over against someone else, over against a position. Even when we align ourselves with someone, we usually see it in that alignment, that positive alignment with a position or a person as against someone or some other position. It's endemic to the way human beings operate uh, in social realities. Uh, We're just antagonistic, apart from Christ, apart from God, apart from living in the reality that he is love, he's at work, he's in control, he's bringing all things to himself. We just automatically are on our own kind of fighting it out day in, day out arguing our way through life, so to speak. And uh, that's that's so true of politics. Mm. You know, it's so true of the way the United States has formed its democracy. It's so true of the way churches in Protestantism ever since the Reformation. Well, we're the holiness church because you people only believe in justification by faith. You never got the sanctification. You're a dead orthodoxy. We're the Pentecostal church because you people don't believe in speaking in tongues. We're, uh, <laughs> we are the uh, church that believes in the Bible. We're the Bible church. We're the inerrancy church because you liberal people uh, got crazy and started to undermine the authority of the Bible. We, we fashion who we are over against someone else. And this, by the way, causes all sorts of defensiveness, mm-hmm. even arrogance, posture of defense. And we can't really engage the world out of that. It just creates contests all over the place. So antagonism is a huge word for me. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, God cannot work. In violence, coercion, mm-hmm. uh, he—you must make space for his healing presence. He doesn't yeah. come. He's love. He doesn't come to like, you know, put a fist to your face and say, "Do what I want, or I'm going to punch you." He is the ultimate. Uh, can I put it this way? Ontology of love. Right. This is how God will work to mm-hmm. change the. And so, anyways, that's uh, that's probably a long explanation, but you get what I'm talking. No, I, I certainly, and I th- I think that just on a personal note, you actually um, take some heat from time to time as you try to find uh, a way or present a way between those antagonisms. When you take a when you take up to try to help us think carefully through uh, those divides. You you sometimes uh, get uh, quite a bit of pushback from both uh, what we might consider left and right, or those opposing poles. You well, do it, and you do it charitably, by the way. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it is. It is. It, well, <clears throat> you know, uh, really, uh, um, I learned most of this ten years ago when I was studying ideology, Zizek, and all those dudes. And do this is there's I'm writing a book now called uh, entitled 
neither do I condemn thee. From John chapter 8, mm-hmm. uh, ideology, sexuality in the church. Oh, good. And it, it's using the sexuality issues of our day to try and help us understand how when we buy into either the affirming or the not affirming side, we're really buying into an already existing antagonism, ideologies, identity structures that um, basically we are trying to enter into the ideology on its own terms. Mm -hmm. Instead, I'm asking, let's make space to talk, engage, be shaped by God in Christ, unwind the antagonisms. Mm -hmm. I believe so much of our sexuality issues today are driven by antagonisms, hurt, Mm -hmm. abuse, uh, and rejection and defensiveness. And so um, if we're going to, as Christians, bring salvation to the world in sexuality, we must get out of this this uh, um, habit of uh, I'm against this, I'm for this, I'm blah blah blah. We don't even know what. So Zizek taught me how to think about all that stuff, yeah. and I just think the tactics are really important. Yes. Um, so that that book's going <clears> to <throat> give us about, oh a half a dozen new tactics to try and engage this issue as the church not enter into it on the world's terms. Oh, good. Well, that gets us to uh, one of the chapters that uh, uh, in Faithful Presence. And, and of course, if, if someone's listening, I certainly want them to pick up Faithful Presence, uh, Seven Disciplines That Shape the Church for Mission. And I, I really um, found, uh, well, there, there wasn't a single chapter that I could say, man, that was the best one. They were all really, really compelling. But there were a couple that for <clears throat> our climate seemed to be um, really key, and one was your chapter on reconciliation as a, as a, a, a practice of faithful presence in the world. And I think it, it is uh, it gives an opportunity to illustrate how you're describing unwinding antagonisms and the way in which we can actually participate so that we don't stand on the sidelines hoping that one day there'll be some sort of uh, resolve to... Um, uh, some sort of conflict that we're observing, but we understand the ways in which we participate in those antagonisms and how they show up in our own lives. And then what, what are those tactics or what are those methods? And, and uh, that was a pretty powerful chapter, uh, at, least as, at, at least in my reading. And, and maybe it was a particular point in my life, I don't know. But David, I thought that for the climate, for the political climate, for the political season, for the discourse on Facebook and the back and forth on Twitter that that uh, you see even among Christians, reconciliation, that was, that was powerful. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, this is, this is root core Anabaptist theology. Uh, root core, um, I, I, I'm an evangelical Anabaptist. Uh, what, I, what I used to like to say is radical evangelicalism, but it doesn't really work to community, you know, the word radical reformation, radical evangelism. Mm-hmm. And so fruit core to Anabaptist theology is the idea, the practice of reconciliation, Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 20. What I wanted to show, however, and what I really think um, became so central to my understanding of how we live life together was to see that Christ's presence sacramentally a space is opened up sacramentally for Christ's presence to be there and work when we mutually submit mm. one to another. Mm. 
Uh, when number three gather and you go and you listen to me and say, Dave, I believe you've sinned against me in this way, in this way, in this way. I submit to you. Is that sin? Is there something I'm missing? Opens up space. Then the dynamic that Christ, in Christ, we've been forgiven of all sin. And he has become Lord of this space. So we gather in his name, his authority, his reign. I don't have to worry about you, you know, killing me, walking away, this, this violence breaking out. No, he is Lord. I'm not. I'm submitting for the future of the kingdom. Hmm. And then we read... What is bound on earth is bound in heaven. What is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. Keys of the kingdom. Kingdom is opened up. Decisions are made that shape not only our lives personally, but the future of the kingdom in this place and in this time. And I think if we could realize, if we could preach that so that people would realize, do you do you understand that God's at work in your conflicts? Do you understand God's at work in your suffering? Do you understand that he wants to work and lead us? to this new place, to engage for his kingdom. If we do, can we come together to submit to him and to one another and let him work in our conflicts? If we could, the kingdom would break out. Mm. I think that's, that's the message of that chapter. His presence, his kingdom, will we submit and allow him to work for this new thing he's doing among us? And that just doesn't apply to our close circle. It has to start there probably. But it happens in our neighborhoods, in our daily lives. And as we engage those outside of Christ, we offer them reconciliation in the world. So I think it is a transformative practice that can change the world. I don't know how we lost it. I got a few theories in the book, but, but I we, we lost it. But we must reclaim it. Yeah. I, and I think that, you know, if again, um, while I do look forward to your next book that offers maybe some new tactics. I think when you draw out um, submission uh, as a as a practice, uh, especially in the midst of conflict, um, as you said, that's a that's a tactic we. Sh- we should not have lost. It's it's one that we should regularly practice. And in, in fact, the whole idea of submission actually undercuts the, uh, uh, the, the normal way we're formed because we are not formed culturally. We're not generally formed socially to submit. We're, we're, we're formed exactly generally the opposite. So uh, it, it really stirs, stirs us to start thinking about all the ways that um, the climate or the atmosphere that's created by submission and like yeah. you described, opens up the space and place for for the presence of Christ, the Spirit of God, to really kind of open up uh, for great healing. Uh, I think uh, yeah. I, 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 you know, as you started in that chapter, you know, I, you said we tolerate each other in the melting pot of antagonisms while the world hungers for love. I thought that was actually toleration does not equate to submission. Right. Well. Um, submission's got uh, a history of being a bad word. Uh, it's it's uh, it's got all this baggage. Uh, both you and I are white dudes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we need to understand is when we're asking, when we ask someone else to submit, we must model submission yeah. first. 
I think I said in the book, <clears throat> the person in perceived power must always go first. This is what, of course, Jesus did around the table. He mm-hmm. he went first. He he did the radical act of submission by washing the disciples' feet at the table. And then he said something like this, as the Father has conferred on me, so I confer on you a kingdom. This is where the kingdom starts. Um, but that, that submission word will always, coming from me, a white man of privilege who's had blessings all his life living in this. By the way, I don't know if I call them blessings. I've had privileges. Mm-hmm. I've right. hierarchy. This is what we all must give up, hierarchy. Yeah. Uh, the, the kingdom of God will not be built on hierarchies. Jesus is the one Lord. We are mutually submitting our gifts, even, you know, as an apostle, Paul did it, mm-hmm. as uh, preachers, teachers, we mutually submit one to another. And out of that, this new space is born. So we have to be careful about this word submission in terms of practicing it. Because it's been so abused right. by so many people. You submit to me. I'm a man and you're my wife. And the Bible tells you to submit. Well, the Bible tells me to die. Yes. To die. Put yes. myself up on the cross. The ultimate act of submission to God and his work in my life. <clears throat> so, um, you know, these are the struggles of this word. Yeah. And, and you know, when you, when you look at Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, you know, before he ever gets to the whipping post verse that gets used uh, for male hierarchy, it's submit to one another out of the fear and reverence of Christ. Right. So, so there, the, the mutuality is all is, is actually wound into how that ought to be practiced. And, and I think the other thing about that chapter that, you know, and, and, I, and I really hope people pick this up, you, you know, you're a practitioner. So while, while you are leading us to think deeply, these things aren't born out of some sort of ivory tower experience. And in that very chapter, you give a personal illustration of, of you know, of going first and what that looks like. And in most churches, especially white churches, especially where there's privilege kind of um, in the air, um, the leader's the last person to go first. And and so I, I sure hope that, you know, someone who, who's listened who might pick up the book would, would also read it with an understanding and awareness that that these aren't these aren't things that you have, have, you know, come up with. These are things you're practicing. And that's what really is, to me, lends some great power to the book because you give uh, illustrations throughout the book for each of these practices that are those you've either personally been involved in or those in your community have been involved in. And not that it needs weight, but it does provide it. Yeah, yeah, I... I hope people know that I am not, uh, I am a professor at an institution, but it's only been in my recent life, like the last 10 years. Uh, I've been part of seven church plants. Uh, my father was a pastor. I feel like um, I've struggled with all these things a lot, and this is why it takes me so long to write a book, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I got to live and mull it over and, and, and figure it out, and not only, not only in my own, like right now I'm a pastor of a church with three other pastors in a church plant here in Westmont, Illinois, one of the greatest places in the world, by the way. <laughs> uh, but uh, I feel like, I mean, I, I get an opportunity to talk to so many pastors struggling with all these issues. Yeah. So I've been enriched uh, by all those experiences and hope it, hopefully it comes through in the book. 
Oh, I uh, well, it, it did for me, and 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 I hope that it, it becomes kind of another reason why someone would pick that uh, pick up faithful presence. The, the, the second chapter that really, in fact, it 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 probably as much uh, caught my attention was your chapter on um, I can't remember the title, but it was your chapter on children. Mm. Um, yeah, discipline of being with children uh, as yeah. the title. I, I have to tell you. Uh, as a pastor um, who where in, in a church and in probably everybody does except for it sounds like the way you all have, have done things um, uh, it, it functions maybe a bit differently in a good way um, you know it, it seems like you're always making appeal for someone to um, help out in the nursery or someone to teach the children and when you when you uh, provided uh, a, a look at uh, how we deal with children, treat children differently, that was powerful in that it actually is the place where we actually encounter God at, at a at a level that we just completely ignore. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, again, uh, all, all seven practices derive in some way or another from the sacramental history of the church. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, confirmation and infant baptism are historic sacramental disciplines of the church, but they point to the reality that Christ promises to be specially present when we are with children, Mm -hmm. with presence, with children. Don't turn them into a program. Mm -hmm. Don't turn them into uh, an object to like in Matthew chapter 18, those first few verses no, Jesus picks up the child, puts the child in the very center of his presence and says, this is the way into the kingdom. Um, and uh, when you do this, when you welcome this child into your presence, you welcome me. And so um, I think the big deal here is to help the church see that to be present with children is to encounter the living, risen mm-hmm. Christ, the re- reality of his presence. And, uh, d- dude, this has changed my whole way of of being with my own child. I have, a, I have one child. He's now, well, he's going to be 12 this month, next mm-hmm. month. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my way of encountering him is, I mean, to always talk and be and connect with him and believe that Jesus is present between us when I can kind of calm down, come into his space and be there. And I think that's illustrative of how God's going to work. I think that's the big lack in our society today. Mm. We've children into, uh, we've made a thousand million programs for our children, whether it be sports, tutoring, schoolwork, math, um, cooking, I don't know, everything under the sun. Mm-hmm. But we spend time around the table to be with our children. This is what they're longing for. This is what they need. This is how, this is what connects and holds them close through all the struggles and pains of our society. So yes, I am like amped up on this, and I believe if we gave uh, our adults a vision for what could happen there, they might actually want to be more with the children than with you know listening to a preacher for. 45 minutes preach preach a sermon every Sunday morning. Amen. I children. 
Yeah, I think I think so. In fact, I've I've uh, talked to uh, those who help kind of organize our our children's Bible study and 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 have have talked to them about how to cast this vision uh, a little bit. We're going to be working through that chapter particularly. Um, because e- even someone who served a long time can can get get caught up in um, moving beyond kind of the the initial excitement of spending time with children to it becomes it becomes kind of more burdensome and it does it laps into sort of a programmatic sort of p- sure. piece of a puzzle and and yeah. they they need to kind of be reminded that that uh, not only them but but all of us really uh, could 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 use that uh, encounter with Jesus, the living Christ in, in our children. And having grandchildren now has been really powerful for me to, uh, you know, relive some of those moments and think, wow, you know, um, I, I've not thought about being present in that way um, as I had, had maybe uh, thought or hoped to. And boy, reading that chapter has really actually reminded me and refreshed me and, and 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 uh, pointed me to ways that I need to be paying more attention, just as you described with with your son. Yeah, great. Yeah, um, you know, one of the things that that um, from the from the seven chapters that that parallel the seven sacraments, and then and then we start working out into um, the arenas. And I'm staying away from spheres, but I'm, I'm, I'm using the word I'm using the word arena in terms of um, uh, kind of the way we encounter um, others that are different. Um, because while um, here in here in our community, for instance, we are not going to encounter uh, immigrants. Uh, we are a uh, ex rural quasi suburban setting that was largely populated by people trying to escape desegregation in the the urban center in Oklahoma City. Yeah. Yeah. And and a lot of people don't even know that's the history of this area. So the likelihood of immigrants searching out a place like ours to locate um, is is remote. But the way we think about the other existing in our community is informed by how we perceive um, uh, the the policies and practices being offered politically with regard to how we treat refugees and immigrants in our country. And and I'm just wondering, um, and I'm, I'm sure you have, but what thoughts have you had in connecting faithful presence with the other that that um, we encounter kind of on a on a on a national scale in, in this yeah. country, and then kind of work that backwards into who we recognize to be the other in our own in our own space? Does that does that make sense? Is that? I think so. Yeah, uh, you know. Um, that chapter on being with the least of these mm-hmm. is it's an important chapter because I believe the early church was so driven by an understanding that where the least of these are, those people who are hurting, struggling, marginalized, uh, even ostracized in society, that's 
where Jesus is. Mm. And so we go to be with, give, Mm. relate, create space between us and those people. And there was a distinct conviction that the risen Christ would be there. They would encounter the risen Christ. You know, uh, think about it. If you thought there was a way to encounter the living Christ, we don't have this in our secular imaginations anymore. But Mm -hmm. if you if you wanted to encounter the risen Christ, of course, you'd go to the Eucharist in medieval times. But 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 uh, in early church times, it was the poor. It was the hurting. It was the lost. And Gary Anderson uh, of Yale has written this book, Charity, where he talks about that drive. So we gotta, we, we've got to understand the way God has called us to be with the poor, uh, with that kind of sacramental dynamic to it. And that he will work there. He will not only work there to solve or to create conditions of renewal, restoration, forgiveness, reconciliation for those who are marginalized. He'll change us who are not marginalized at this point Mm -hmm. and create a whole new community. So this is the way we always look at the other, especially those who are poor and marginalized. Immigrants, um, I mean, my, my... we have a strong immigrant community where I live, mm-hmm. and so it's, it's never it's that that has become a very important part of who we are and what we do. We make space for those coming in uh, from various places around the world, uh, out of the poverty and violence of the world. We make space for the kingdom for them. That's what we do. But um, for those who don't have those people, there's always somebody. Mm-hmm. I mean, I li- when I lived in the rather upper middle class suburbs of Chicago um, and, and we and the block I lived in was all white people hmm. you wouldn't and it was all nice homes you wouldn't believe the hurt on that block hmm. you wouldn't believe a divorced couple such violence in that home mm-hmm. the man had to leave the woman couldn't even face her husband ex-husband in the courtroom hmm. uh or child custody, we went, a couple of us went, not me, but my wife, went with her to the courts to be with her in her struggle. Mm-hmm. So we have to start with where we're at. Mm-hmm. And then some of us, we sent 20 people to a to Westmont, which is where I live now, middle, lower middle class area, where there's a whole different sorts of, of poor, hurting, marginalized. But this is a ministry of the church. Mm-hmm. This is where... This is a key issue of who we are and how we enter the world. Well, let me let me see. Let me let me press you a bit because I think yeah. you, you made a great you made a great observation and and maybe you've got some suggestions. So you said we don't have this in our secular imagination, and, and it was it was a reference to this is where Jesus is. This is where the living Christ is, and we don't have that in our secular imagination. So what tactics, practices um, uh, do you point to, do you suggest um, for that? And, and I... I I do uh, think that your chapter on on being with the least of these is, and that's why I said it's very hard to pick one of those chapters and say, well, that was it. But but I think David that that there has to be there has to be something that that we we do to reignite, recover uh, a different imagination. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I could call it the sacramental imagination. Mm. 
but mm. I'm afraid that yeah. um, I'm afraid that people would get too uh, attached to Anglican high liturgy. Mm-hmm. I think I mean now. I, I am all for a return to certain liturgical ideas, mm-hmm. uh, and I and I do. I, I, some people have accused me of being an Anglican at times because of <laughs> hey, I've ordered church services, but I, this is this is a topic for another time. Um, the Anglicans think the liturgy is enough. I mean, I, I'm sorry to throw the Anglicans under the bus. Forgive mm-hmm. me, my Anglican brothers and sisters. I didn't mean it. Like that. I meant. Too often I've encountered the Anglicans and they think, well, we got the liturgy. That's all we need. Well, actually, um, uh, you do have the resources there. Now, what are you going to do with it? Mm. I think we need to recapture the real presence of Christ and the discerning of that presence. And pastors can, can, you know, Baptist free church pastors like you and me can can start on Sunday morning by reigniting what happens around this table. Mm. Uh, out of scripture, by the way. Yes. And and then helping people understand it's all there in scripture where Christ is present in the world, wherever we eat, wherever we eat in different dynamics. Likewise, with being with the poor. Can we be present with someone who's hurting in our congregation? <laughs> That's scary for some people. Yeah. But let's start there yeah. and let's see how God will work. Oh, Oh, please, uh, you do not have to solve everybody's problem. You do not. Actually, that's the whole point. You don't do anything. You sit there. You open up space. You respond to what God would do. And you just see God start to work in his marvelous presence. Well, that starts in the close circle from for a lot of Christians. And then it extends into the world through these other circles. The second thing I'd say is... Um, start gathering with people during the week in your home, uh, 10 to 12 people. It might take you a while to get people to come to your home. It might take you a year or two of asking people because people are scared. Uh, we're, we're Americans. What do you want from me? Why do you want, why do you want me to come to your house? Is this a fundraiser? You know, all that stuff. Right. No, I just need friends. We need friends. Can we gather in his presence and then start to learn how to be in his presence and tend to the poor in our neighborhoods? And then, you know, from there, we go out into the various places looking for and being present with these places where, where the poor are. I mean, that's that's just a suggestion. Yeah. Maybe one last thing as we kind of wind up. I don't want to I don't want to abuse the, the privilege of your time. But but one of the one of the things that you refer to. Um, that for some traditions, it's just either lost or never been really a big part. But you you reference uh, discern the presence, discern the presence of Christ. Now, in in in, in an Anabaptist context, in in, in uh, say a Mennonite context, um, those are very familiar concepts. Uh, but even in even low church. Uh, um, Free church, uh, my Baptist, Southern Baptist context, there was not a lot of emphasis on discernment uh, beyond, say, discern what your gift is. Yes. But you're talking about something different than 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 kind of me trying to figure out my own individual kind of uh, uh, place where I fit in the machine. You're, you're, you're describing something altogether different. Could you kind of elaborate just a little bit? Yeah, well... Um, all right. Uh, there's a lot to say here, but I'll try to like wrap it up <laughs> as best I can. The first thing I would say is uh, people often ask me, Dave, uh, where is this presence that you talk about? 
where is Jesus' presence? Is it? And, and I say, well, in the history of the church, the Roman Catholics made a mistake at Trent. They said the mm-hmm. presence is in the bread and in the cup, mm-hmm. actually in it, uh, mm-hmm. transformed to be it. Um, Re- Reformation properly understood that was a control tactic. Mm-hmm. And Henri de Lubac and many different Catholic theologians have recognized that was a big mistake. Um, the, uh, the Pentecostals, the uh, Protestant Schleiermachians, the, maybe them the, the Baptists, um, preachers, we located the presence as a individual, personal, inward experience. Now, it is that. And actually, Christ is present around the bread and the wine, as the Catholics say, too. But it's not all that. It's it's what's going on between us and among us. Mm. Christ sits among us, working his presence by the Spirit mm. in what goes on between us. Mm. And we have to discern what he's doing and how he's working. And so my second comment is, how do we discern that? We learn at the table certain things. I call it a grammar. I call it a logic. It's the broken bread, the forgiveness in Christ. Mm. It's the reconciliation of all things. You know, whenever we say, before we usually take the bread and the cup, we say, let there be no enmity between you or another person. Go make it right before you come to the table. Mm. Jesus' words. Um, So there's a logic. God's reconciling people in his presence. Mm. There's a renewal and a restoration and a healing. When Christ says this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the fulfillment of all the promises, the new relationship we have with God, with the Father, by this Holy Spirit, through the Son. And so these are the things we must discern going on when we're talking and being with each other. Oh, I think God's calling you and working your forgiveness or your reconciliation towards someone. Or I feel, I, I see God wants to heal you. Let me pray for you. Let us. And, and, and so there's a logic that we learn how to discern in our interactions with people as we open up space for his presence. Mm, fantastic. Yeah, that, that's, that's good stuff. Well, Dave, I, uh, I, as always, appreciate the time you give. I, I appreciate your writing. Um, you've, you've modeled a way to think between the binaries and then antagonisms. You, you, you practice what we're talking about. And um, I hope... I hope your book continues to uh, not just sell well, but really have a, a strong impact as we uh, think about how, uh, as a church, as God's people, we can be faithfully present in the world. I, I appreciate you. Thanks very much, Todd, and I appreciate all your work, God's blessing on all your labors there, and uh, let's stay in touch. Yeah, let's do. Thanks, David. Have a great day. All right. All right Bye-bye man. now. Bye-bye. I hope you found uh, that conversation helpful and just want to let you know that there are a number of uh, good podcasts uh, upcoming in the works. I've got another uh, podcast interview with Adam Clark, been uh, learning uh, a bit from Adam and got to uh, chat with him again a couple of weeks ago. Um, Got a uh, conversation I want to have with Bart Barber on uh, the pastor theologian and uh, as practiced in his context in uh, Texas. And uh, then I've got a couple of uh, surprise podcasts. That is special uh, episodes that uh, I had uh, some conversations with uh, Nathan Gilmore and Eric Hall. And then uh, another podcast where a bunch of podcasters got together and and we had, uh, well, just a a kind of a roundtable event. Uh, 
Uh, all that's uh, forthcoming, as well as uh, a number of others. Got several books I'm trying to get through so I can interview uh, those authors. I think they'd be really beneficial and helpful. So uh, make sure you've subscribed to Pathological in uh, iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcatcher. And that way you'll always be up to date. You can subscribe to the Pathological newsletter if you go over to uh, toddlittleton.net or pathological.com and you fill out that form and, and certainly you won't, uh, you'll be alerted and reminded about every uh, podcast. And each podcast comes with a, a short blog post or maybe a long one as it is. And currently I'm working actually on a blog series, not an interview series, but a blog series, My Black History. And uh, you can go check that out. I would love your feedback and your input, kind of reflecting on my own experience during Black History Month, not as a a black or African-American, but as a uh, uh, white American who uh, grew up in Oklahoma City uh, and really came of age in my uh, adolescence in the aftermath of uh, desegregation in, uh, in Oklahoma City. Just some reflections, hopefully, to help uh, my people think about the issue of race and whiteness and class and some of those other themes. And uh, hopefully, we'll have a few more folks on the podcast maybe along the way to help us think about that. And so, uh, again, as always, I really appreciate you listening. You you could give us a, a review and a rating over in iTunes. Remember, you have to uh, log in to do that, and it should be a help. It helps us get found and discovered by those who are interested in the intersection of life, faith, and and um, thinking theologically, uh, working through a practical theology on the ground. So without uh, uh, keeping on, on anymore, uh, again, thanks for listening. And until next time, this has been Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Peace. Peace.